And this morning we're looking at Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 47 through verse 56. Once again, listen to the reading of God's holy word. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude of swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? And they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must happen thus? In that hour Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber? with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Seek the Lord's blessing on this, his holy word. Lord God in heaven, we give praise and thanks to your name, Father, for this opportunity that you have given us on this day to worship you, to hear your word as you speak to us now. And we pray that your spirit would accompany your word and that it would truly find within within our hearts as it goes forth that rich and fertile soil which will bring about great and abundant fruit for your glory. And so we pray now, Father, for your blessing upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, as the final days and hours of, and now hours of, of Jesus' life draw closer, it seems as though so much happens in a, a short amount of time that it's hard to keep up. And we've already considered this in relation to uh, the disciples and Jesus and, and how it was likely kind of a, an emotional roller coaster for them over these last several days. But as these events keep rolling out, there are others who are impacted as well. In fact, as Jesus' death draws closer... That death that would ultimately secure the light and the hope that is the gospel. As this a pivotal event of human history draws near, the sin and darkness hidden in the hearts of men becomes exposed for all to see. And as it does, for those who would then, uh, in response to this exposure, who would uh, humble themselves before the Son of God and 
call upon His name in faith, well then their sin will be washed and cleansed as Jesus will provide that once for all perfect sacrifice for their sins. But for others, for those who continue to harden their hearts, who continue to reject Jesus even after their uh, sin has been exposed, this exposure of their sin will then just uh, further harden their hearts and invite the just wrath and curse of God upon them for their sin, which will ultimately come on the last great day if they do not uh, turn from it. And for Jesus, as these sinful hearts are are being exposed in, in friend and foe alike, Jesus will be further isolated as he enters into this his darkest hour, this great time of, of suffering. We've been looking at the, the humiliation of Christ. We know it began with his with his birth, with his incarnation, and his the, the lowest state into which he was born, just the fact that he was born into this fallen and sinful world. But now it's it's truly heightening here. And that Jesus enters this time with no human companion or comforter by his side. Jesus must face the painful and shameful death of the cross alone, forsaken by even those that he came to save. Well, this exposure of sin begins here in the Garden of Gethsemane. And while Jesus is still speaking to the disciples as he's rousing them awake from their slumber, in verse 47, he says, Behold, or we read, Behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And so Judas appears with a heavily armed mob to carry out his wicked act of betrayal. And so Judas is now openly exposed as the betrayer. Of course, up to this time, the, the other disciples didn't know who the betrayer was, and, and seemingly they had no suspicion that it was Judas. Remember, Jesus first mentioned that, that he was going to be betrayed back in, in chapter 17 when they were still in, in Galilee. He said that the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised. Well, that was very general. That betrayer could have been anyone. And then a little later, in chapter 20, just before they headed to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration, Jesus again informed the disciples that he would be betrayed. And though the betrayer wasn't identified, he did reveal at that time that the betrayer would be working together with the chief priests and the scribes, his chief opponents. Well, it wasn't until they were eating the Passover meal together, just a couple hours before this, that Jesus dropped the shocking news in chapter 26, verse 21, when he said, As surely I say to you, one of you will betray me. Well, as Judas now approaches with this armed mob, all would become clear to the other disciples who the betrayer was. They would think, well, Jesus was right. It truly was one of them, one that they had called friend and brother. This one whom they had trusted as one of their own. Surely would have been a shocking realization for all of them. And they likely were consumed. You can imagine if if, uh, you had a close friend, a close group of friends, and 
and uh, you found out one of those friends betrayed another friend, well, there'd be shock and anger and even grief and pain at the violation of trust and the disruption of the relationship. But no longer did the disciples have to question, Lord, it is, is it I? For now they know that Judas was the betrayer. And as Judas approached, Matthew, as well as all the other gospel writers, emphasizes this unsettling truth, that Judas was one of the twelve. And again, this is repeated uh, throughout. This point is hammered home. And again, it points out the depths of the treachery involved and the depths of the humiliation and the suffering that our Savior endured for us. In fact, in the Gospels, every, uh, every mention of Judas in the Gospels, he's identified, or it's either in the context or specifically he's identified as the betrayer or as the traitor or the one who would betray him. And so it's certainly because of this that everyone remembers Judas. They don't remember him for whatever good he may have done. They remember him for this wicked deed because it's drilled into us through the scriptures that he was the betrayer of the Lord Jesus. Now consider how far Judas had, had fallen in this, right? Judas was, was one of Jesus, uh, his close intimate companions. He was one who was called by Jesus, one who sat at Jesus' feet and, and received a teaching and instruction, one who was even empowered by the Spirit to, to cast out demons and to heal the sick, one who proclaimed the gospel. Again, this becomes a great warning to us that there may be betrayers and deceivers in the church. But of course, this warning isn't so that we can then go on a crusade trying to root out those betrayers and deceivers. But no, it's, it's meant to help us and challenge us to examine our own hearts. To see if we are the betrayer. Are we the deceiver? And seeking to rely upon the grace of God that it may not be so. But the point here is that they do exist. And ultimately... They are revealed. Well, it's apparent that Judas made no such self-examination as he, again, hardened his heart. Uh, even after Jesus revealed that it was one of the twelve when they were still in the upper room. And now that hard heart of Judas is exposed to all. In verse 48, we see that Judas had prearranged with this mob a signal to identify Jesus from the other disciples. And this would, of course, be necessary because, one, it was, it was late at night and uh, it would have been dark. But also, it would be very likely that some of the soldiers in the temple guard may have never uh, seen Jesus before. They didn't know uh, him from any of the other disciples. And so Judas had this, this uh, foolproof sign that he would show, I'm going to do this, and then that will, you will then know that he is the one and then you are to seize him. Now it's true that Judas could have done this anyway, right? He could have just kind of walked with the with the crowd and just and just pointed uh, Jesus out. He, he's the one pointed in his direction, or he could have just called Jesus by name, "Hey, Jesus, Master," and then waited for him to turn around and respond, so that the mob would then know who he was. But Judas does neither of these. 
in a bold and very hypocritical move, he goes right up to Jesus and he greets him. And this is bold because for Judas, at this point, there was no turning back. See, he was no longer hiding his deceit and his rejection of Jesus in the shadows. And so as Judas approached with the mob, well, of course, the disciples, well, they may have thought, well, that maybe here comes Judas with his group. Maybe they seized him. Maybe they compelled him to lead them to Jesus. But no, Judas gave no warning as he approached. He didn't, as he's coming through the robbery, he could have shouted, Hey, run, because they're coming to get you. As you would think that someone who had been seized and was being led to point out his beloved master might do. But there's no warning given so that they might flee. No, Judas goes right up to Jesus and greets him as if nothing was amiss. And this greeting exposed the hypocrisy of, of Judas' heart. First, he, he calls Jesus rabbi as, as if he's still respecting Jesus as his, his master and teacher. And yet there's no respect as he betrays Jesus with this greeting. And of course, to make matters worse, Judas then kissed him. Now, we typically don't go around greeting one another with a kiss. But this was the common cultural greeting in Jesus' day. And, of course, was a sign of, 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 of welcome and affection and friendship. And yet, this beautiful demonstration of brotherly love is being used by Judas to carry out this great evil. Judas, in front of the mob and the other disciples, puts on this charade of, of affection and love. Right? Perhaps wanting others, especially perhaps the disciples, to think that he was forced to betray Jesus or that they threatened Judas to, to show them where Jesus was. And Judas wants them to think that by some possible chance he was not really responsible for this wicked deed of betrayal. Indeed, the other disciples, they didn't know at this time that this was all prearranged, that it was Judas' plan to identify Jesus by greeting him with a kiss. They didn't know at this time that Judas had received money for this wicked deed, which he now does. Judas wanted to look his best in spite of his deception and wickedness. Now the great irony here, and it's truly a tragic irony, is that this is the last time that Jesus will receive any kind of human kindness or affection before his death. Right, this kiss that he receives from Judas is the last kiss. It's the last show of affection that he will receive. None of his true and faithful disciples are now going to have the opportunity to show their love and their affection to Jesus before he dies on the cross. But this kiss, though it's very public, this kiss had no affection or love attached to it at all. It was just a sign to mark the man. A sign that was filled with the poison and deceit of treachery. And this is precisely what Jesus now exposes. As he responds in verse 50, Friend, why have you come? Now, 
understand that some translations may have here, friend, do what you came to do. So what is it? Is it a question or is it a, a comment? Well, though the question seems to be more likely, the Greek can really go either way. And so that's why there's a little diversity uh, depending on the translation. But whether it's a question or a statement, the point is actually the same. And the purpose and the intent is the same. Jesus is looking to probe Judas' heart and, and get him to think carefully about what he's doing. Judas... Do you know what you're about to do? Why are you doing, doing this? Why, why are you here? And Luke 22, verse 48, makes it even more pointed as he has Jesus continuing, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Right? Judas, think about what you're doing. Think of how despicable this is. It violates every rule of, of friendship and etiquette and propri uh, propriety. He's exposing Judas' heart. And by doing so, Jesus is actually giving Judas one more opportunity to turn away from his sin. Judas, if you would think about what it is you're doing, pause for a moment and think about it. Maybe you won't do it. And what a great thing for us to think about as well, right? We sometimes become hardened in our hearts and we, we dive uh, headlong into sin. And it, sometimes if we would just maybe think about what is this going to do to me, to those around me? How is it going to be received by my Savior as I trample upon His blood? As he gave himself for me. But Judas would have none of this. And his heart grows colder still. Jesus is also revealing to Judas here. Jesus isn't surprised. And he knows. And again, he had revealed this before. When Judas, uh, well, they were in the upper room. And he said, Judas said, it's an eye. And he said, well... You, you said it. <laughs> he knows what Judas has been up to. Indeed, for the betrayal was pre-appointed by the Heavenly Father's eternal decree, even as it's revealed in the Scriptures. Psalm 41, verse 9, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Judas has been exposed and he says nothing. After this, he, he says nothing. He responds, he gives no response to, to Jesus. In this probing uh, question, no response. And the soldiers just come and they grab hold of Jesus. And they hold him firmly, ready to take him away. Well, this reminds us then that Judas didn't come alone. And he brings him with a, a heavily armed mob. They, they come with swords and clubs. And this was quite a crowd. In John 18, John mentions that a cohort of Roman soldiers was there. Now, a cohort was 600 men. Now, it may not have been the full 600 men, uh, 600 soldiers. It could have just been a representation. 
But of course, added to uh, however many Roman soldiers were there, you had the temple guards. And likely behind them were the members of the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, right? So you had Judas leading the way, the soldiers and the temple guards, the Roman soldiers and the temple guards, and then really the picture of who's behind all this. You have the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. The chief priests and the scribes, well, they must have been pretty proud of themselves, what they had determined to do just a few days before, back in verse 3 and 4, when they plotted to take Jesus by trickery and, and kill him, well, this had now become a reality, or at least it had taken a huge step at becoming a reality. And, of course, what they were afraid to do, they were afraid to do this during the festival. Well, this is really right in the middle of the festival. They had just finished the Passover. But now they're able to accomplish this. They don't have to wait anymore. Because with this help of an, an insider who betrayed Jesus, and they do it all under the cover of darkness. Again, a, an appropriate uh, picture for us uh, of their actions, that evil and deceit happening under the cover of night. And to assure that there would be no trouble in apprehending him, well, they again, they have this big show of force. Again, we don't know exactly how many soldiers, but... There were many. It was a multitude. A large crowd of people. And certainly they would easily be able to overcome any resistance that Jesus or his small band of followers followers, uh, might attempt to put up. In fact, it almost seemed kind of overkill. Because you think about it, Jesus had never demonstrated any violence. And certainly... Judas would have informed them that they were, there were, it was only Jesus and the 11 disciples that were with him. But this show of forth and, force and the hatching of their plan in the middle of the night, again, is all intended to hide their cowardice and their hypocrisy. And it's this that Jesus now exposes. <clears throat> Verse 55, though directed at the religious leaders, Jesus says to the uh, to the entire mob, he says, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat dally with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. And so he's exposing their hypocrisy, their fear, and their cowardice. Jesus was never hiding from them. He never went around in in secret uh, trying to escape their, uh, their sight. He walked and he taught openly among them. Even in the temple, in broad daylight, it was, he was clear to find. You could always find where Jesus was. You just went where the crowd of people was. And truly, if he had committed some crime or done some horrible deed, well, then they would have had ample time to seize him. But Jesus knows that they were hypocrites, espousing to be just and honorable, and yet being wicked and deceitful in their hearts. Openly, of course, you know, when even when they were debating Jesus and questioning him, trying to ensnare him in his words, they often uh, were very civil and we called him teacher. Even when Jesus would leave them in silence, outwardly, they were very civil toward him. But underneath that veneer of civility and propriety were hearts that were seething with hatred and evil thoughts of murder and bloodshed. And so Jesus exposes that. 
He also exposes their fear. Not only were they afraid of the the people who thought Jesus was a a great prophet, at the very least they thought he was a prophet, and and the, the religious leaders feared that if they would seize Jesus, well then the people would rebel against him and, and stir up a riot. But Jesus also knows not only were they afraid of the people, but they were very likely afraid of him. And he knows that they're cowards. And undoubtedly some of them would have been witness to or heard of his power and authority to heal and to cast out demons, thinking perhaps now, well, what other power and authority does this man have? Well, Judas certainly knew. He knew of Jesus' real power and authority. Judas was there when when Jesus healed the the crazed demoniacs on the other side of the sea. He was there when, when Jesus calmed the wind and the waves by just speaking a few simple words. And so perhaps Judas was the one who told them to come heavily armed and prepared as if they were going out to fight this and capture this great army general with all these forces along with him. But did Judas really think that they were going to be able to stop Jesus, who was this storm stopper, no matter how many people they brought with him? Well, surely they were afraid of what Jesus might do. And so they have this show of force. But as Jesus clearly challenges them on this fear and hypocrisy, he also shows that this too was all a part of the Father's predetermined plan and purpose. Verse 56, But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Prophecies such as Isaiah 53 verse 12, uh, that Jesus the Messiah was, was numbered with the transgressors. Right? He's being taken away as a robber. They came and arrested him. They were armed to the hilt, and they were like they were coming after again this this highway robber, a dangerous uh, insurrectionist. In fact, it's interesting here that the word uh, for robber can mean both uh, robber or insurrectionist, and it's the same word that will be used later to describe the one whom Jesus replaced on the cross, Barabbas. Well, this and many other scriptures about Jesus' betrayal. Again, we already mentioned Psalm 41. And, and again, his, his being surrounded by enemies and mobs of people, as we sang earlier in Psalm 35, and we'll sing again in Psalm 59. The fulfillment of the scriptures. And Jesus' emphasis on this is, is really a reminder to the Jews that, that this is part of God's plan. They're not in control. God's in control. And the same, the same message to the disciples. God is in control. I've told you these things. And what I've told you has been, you can be found in the scriptures. Well, it's even a reminder to Jesus to continue to press on and to trust in the perfect plan that his father has set before him. And that truly that all things are being worked out by the heavenly father. But what about the disciples? You see, they too were with Jesus when Judas and this mob came upon Jesus and seized him. How did they respond? Well, 
They responded with a rash outbreak of violence. Verse, back in verse 51, And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. Now Matthew leaves this, this uh, disciple unnamed. In fact, what's interesting in this whole account is that the only names mentioned are Judas and Jesus, really. So the focus, all the attention is, is on this treachery of the betrayal. But in John 18, we discover that this wielder of the sword was none other than Peter. And certainly that ought not to surprise us. Though we're more used to Peter being quick with his words than the sword, we know Peter's great love and devotion to Jesus. And here it seems as though he's perhaps maybe still half asleep, realizing that he had failed Jesus and not standing watch and praying, and also aware of his, his own previous boasting that he will not fall away even though the others would. And even perhaps wanting that prediction that of Jesus that he made that Peter would deny him three times. Peter didn't want that to come true. And so he springs into action in his usual impulsive fashion. In fact, it seems that Peter is almost wanting to prove to Jesus that he meant what he said. Back in verse 35, that even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Because by his actions here, Peter is most certainly thrusting himself into danger and putting his own life on the line by wielding the sword. Likely, if it weren't for Jesus, who was quick to, first of all, rebuke Peter, and then, as Luke tells us, then Jesus also then healed the ear of the high priest's servant, well, if those things hadn't happened, Peter may have very well have been also hauled off. And the whole situation could have uh, gone in a very different direction. But you see, Jesus had plans for Peter. And the Heavenly Father had plans for Peter. Now was not the time or the place for Peter to be arrested. And though this action was intended to show Peter's devotion to Jesus, it was a foolish action and, and clearly wrong. And Jesus goes on to rebuke Peter, verse 52, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and He will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? Consider what Jesus is saying here. First, Jesus is clear that though there may be a place for the sword in the civil realm, his kingdom wouldn't be ushered in. And the gospel wouldn't advance throughout the world with the sword leading the way. We can think of the false religion of, of Islam, right? And how it, it advanced, especially early on and even today, advancing its lies with Convert or die by the edge of the sword. But, you see, they have to force people to believe their lies. But the gospel, from the very beginning, the gospel has spread around the world because of the blood of the martyrs shed by the sword. Because faithful witnesses confess Christ to the point of, the de of death and thus that bore witness to the glorious truth of the gospel. Because no one's going to die for a lie. 
It's true that Jesus said to his disciples that they will suffer and die because of him. But never once did he say that they were to, to go out with arms and purposely incite the wrath of those who will despise us and oppose us. And so the warning stands even for us. That those who live by the sword will die by the sword. The gospel is not to be advanced with the sword. But secondly, note that Jesus reminds Peter of who he is and, and really all that is his disposal, right? After all, it was Peter who, of the twelve who confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the, the Son of the living God. And if Peter believed this to be true, well then he would know that the heavenly host would be able to come to Jesus' aid. All Jesus would need to do would be to call out to the Father in prayer and help would come. But Jesus doesn't pray here. In fact, after these rebukes, Jesus doesn't say anything. Because from his earlier prayer in the garden, he had already willingly committed himself to carrying out the Father's will. And that meant he would go to the cross. And Jesus confirms this yet again by calling Peter and the disciples to remember that these things were foretold in the scriptures. And they must happen they must happen because god has determined it from before the foundation of the world that sinners sinners like us would be saved by the son of god giving his life for us on the cross paying the penalty and the debt for our of our sin enduring the wrath and curse of god for us but there's one final exposure we need to address and that's the exposure of the boasting of Peter and the other disciples. Remember, they all vowed that they wouldn't flee from him. They all would die first before they left and forsook him. But our passage closes with this, these really dark and lonely words. The end of verse 56. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. And all here means all, and it's emphatic. All the disciples left him. Despite all their boasting and prideful posturing, they all left Jesus alone. He had no human comforter or friend. And Jesus had warned them. Right? He told them explicitly, as it, as it too again had been foretold by the prophet Zechariah, that when the shepherd was struck, the sheep would scatter. But they refused to believe. Instead, they, they boasted of their devotion to him. And then even just before this, Jesus wanted Peter, James, and John to be on the lookout and to pray that they would not fall into temptation. And they couldn't even do that. And now at the time when his betrayer was at hand, when the heat was turned up and the shepherd was struck, they all ran and they scattered. Their pledges of allegiance, even unto death, were shown to be puffs of prideful smoke that quickly disappear in the wind they've left jesus all alone with his captors and with his betrayer and even this would be in fulfillment of the scriptures even as the messiah would cry out in his heart with the psalmist in psalm 25 verse 16 for i am lonely and afflicted so what can we glean from all this exposure in the garden of gethsemane we see that Judas, 
is exposed as the betrayer of Jesus. Before, Jesus had simply said one of the twelve, but now it's been made public and clear that Judas is the betrayer and how truly vile his deed is. Then the plotting the scheme of the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees, again, is also made public to all as well. They wanted Jesus arrested and ultimately destroyed. The wicked desires of their heart are now in full view. And it seems as though they're getting their way. And the prideful claims of Peter and the other disciples are also exposed for what they are. Empty promises that show their weakness when they, things get tough and they seek to rely on their own strength rather than on the everlasting arms and the grace of the Lord. And finally, even Jesus himself is exposed. He's exposed as not being the, the political Messiah that many were hoping for. But instead, in due time, he will expose and reveal to all that he is the promised Messiah who will deliver his people, not from their political enemies, but from this, their spiritual enemies, from Satan, sin, and its consequence, consequence of death. And he would do this through his coming death and resurrection. Friends, this is the essence of the gospel. That Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. And that he rose again to secure that victory. So that we in our weakness and our sin, when we hear the proclamation of the gospel, our hearts are, are exposed to that truth. To exposed to the, the sinfulness of our own hearts. And what should be our response? Do we humble ourselves later as the eleven would do, even Peter? And seek the Lord's grace and mercy for forgiveness? Or do we continue to harden our hearts as Judas and the religious leaders would do? Building upon themselves and upon their own heads coals of fire Preparing them for the day of judgment. Beloved of God, this is the truth that has been revealed even now. And may the Holy Spirit expose your need that you may truly humbly be drawn to Him, that you might believe in Jesus Christ for salvation and commit to living your life all to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God in heaven, we do praise you and thank you for the truth of your word. And we're so mindful of our own sin and our weakness. And as we read your word, as we hear proclaimed this glorious gospel truth, it does expose our own hearts as we see our sin. And the more we study your word, the more sin we discover. Lord, we pray that we would not harden our hearts, but that we would truly each time humble ourselves, confess our sin, and cry out to you for forgiveness and mercy and grace, which we can be assured is secured for us because of what Jesus has done for us. That this is the truth that has been revealed in your, in your word. And that even as it, it encouraged Jesus, even during this time, to be mindful of, of all the prophecies which spoke of him. 
even the prophecies of trouble and suffering and humiliation that would come his way. And yet he trusted that you, Father, were working out your perfect plan for his good, for our good, and for your glory. And so we just praise you and thank you, Father, for these things. We pray that you would impress these truths upon our hearts as you draw us all closer to yourself. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.